Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein. And, you know, I'm thinking about food. It's not much of a shock. My brothers, who uh, I know uh, listen to each of these podcast episodes without fail, are nodding their heads and saying, he's talking about food again. What, what's going on? But, you know, I live in New York part-time part and in Hanover, New Hampshire, most of the time. And I was just thinking about it in New York. You know, there's endless numbers of restaurants. They're everywhere. And the food is great. But I... I I never really found uh, a neighborhood place that I like to go to all the time. Um, I, I, maybe because there's so much variety that I, that, that I haven't done it. But, uh, you know, it's like the, 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 the thing you see on TV, like the, the bar that everybody goes to, the Cheers bar or what have you. And uh, there's just too many choices. But, you know, back home in Hanover and Hampshire, there is, a, uh, there is a place like that. It's called Murphy's Pub. And any one of you that uh, went to Dartmouth, assuming you were over 21 years old at the time, or came back as an alum or just passed through town, probably know uh, Murphy's uh, Pub. Uh, it is your, your classic kind of neighborhood, uh, neighborhood place where you can get a great burger, you can get a little bit better food. It sounds like a commercial for this place, and I'm not even charging them anything. Um, so it's a place that uh, you kind of feel you kind of feel comfortable uh, at. Uh, and our our guest today on the podcast is the guy that created that uh, restaurant and still runs it, um, Nigel Leeming. Um, Nigel's from New Zealand, another immigrant to America that made uh, that made good. And that restaurant, uh, Murphy's, been open twenty twenty seven uh, years and. Uh, and, and, and running, although I have to remember next time I talked to him, I used to go years ago to get their chili uh, bowl, uh, which, was, which was great, and it's never been the same since, uh, since I don't know what happened, but I'm going to have to put in a complaint. Maybe somebody, maybe he'll hear about it somehow, some other way if I don't go and tell him, right? Uh, we'll see. Um, the other thing about restaurants, you know, it's funny. How many of you have had someone come up to you or have said at some point in their lives, Boy, I, I should open up a restaurant. I wish I'd open up a restaurant. How many of you have even said it to yourself? You know, if you, if you never did it and you never said that, you should count yourself lucky, of course, because the failure rate is, you know, crazy. But uh, I have uh, also said it, uh, and people have said it to me because I love to cook and I really enjoy it, but I realize somehow still somewhat sa sane that that would be a disastrous thing to do because it's unbelievably hard to run a restaurant and there's so many things you're doing. And it's one thing to invite friends over, you know, uh, for, for dinner and cook for them and have a great evening and great meal. It's quite another thing to do it every single uh, night uh, with, a big, uh, with a big menu and managing a, uh, a, a big team. Uh, but there is something, you know, there is something about food. There is something about restaurants. This is another thing, by the way, different between New York and a place like, like Hanover. And it's not just, again, because in New York there's an endless number of great restaurants, but people don't even use their kitchens in New York. They might have the fanciest kitchen in the world, but they don't use their kitchens. They just they go out. Uh, or, or, you know, they do seamless and they order in. Uh, this happens all the time. And in Hanover, I don't even know if we have seamless yet. Uh, we're waiting for Uber. I heard there's a guy named David Uber that's going to come in. That's a bad joke. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, I don't know whether we have seamless, but people tend to eat at home so much, uh, so much more. The fact that it's 25 below zero in winter, I don't think has anything to do with that either. Um, but Nigel's going to set us straight, Nigel Leeming. He's... Uh, you know, again, if you're from this area, or spent some time here, then uh, then you know, uh, then then you might know him because he's uh, he's always there and uh, um, is a great uh, is a great host. But he also fits the bill of what uh, you know the theme of the podcast is uh, uh, is is as well because most people listening you know, never heard of the guy, never heard of Murphy's, and so you know once again you get a chance to learn about 
fascinating people you, you probably never knew existed, but yeah, you're going to wish you did. So um, uh, let's, bring, uh, let's bring Nigel in and, and grab a seat and uh, maybe uh, quiz him a little bit about that, that chili that I, didn't, uh, that I haven't been happy about and uh, make him happy that he's joined the SIDCAST. Welcome, Nigel. It's great to have you with us. Great to be here. So, Nigel, you know, you have such an interesting background, a lot of things that you've done. But the one that really jumped out that I want to start our conversation with is uh, mixing the drinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, mixologist, as we call it uh, today, but uh, good old-fashioned bartender. Uh, you were a bartender through college, I think, and uh, one of the ways that you made a, made a bit of money and one of, the, one of the pathways to get into the restaurant business. And so what makes for a good bartender? Well, you know, bartending is funny, Sid, because um, everybody wants to do it. In fact, we do the uh, a tuck thing where they auction to buy the chance to bartend at Murphy's, and they are all nervous and they have a thrill. But bartending, in in, in its essence, is like people who want to get up on stage and be a rock star. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, they, yeah. they like they like that. It's fun. You're in control. You make good money. Um, and you're engaging people all the time, um, and it's kind of cool. People are watching you perform, and it's it's kind of it's it's sexy in a way. Is it is it the mixing the drinks, the technical thing, or is kind of the presence you have as an individual, just sharing, talking, listening? Yeah, I think it's that you you know you get you get into areas with people that they probably wouldn't talk about, and they're you, they, you, they ta- do, you tell your bartender stuff you wouldn't tell, tell your wife your or stuff husband, and, or you hear <laughs> stuff about uh, the breakup that's about to occur, and you can hear it. You know, it's pretty interesting. Uh, it's a good thing you're not in the business of shorting stock of uh, people. <laughs> no, no. Well, you get a few stock tips. None of them have ever worked out. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're getting it from people that are uh, that could be drunk. So there you have it. Uh, yeah, that's uh, it's because uh, you're at the center. It's one of these community gathering places when you get right down to it. And so yeah, you hear people, you talk to people, and uh, um, it's you know Starbucks talks about has talked about their places, the third, the third place, something like that. They, they use, you know, there's home, there's work, and then you go to Starbucks. But long before that were, um, um, you know, sitting, sitting, I don't mean people just getting drunk day and night, but just sitting, going to your, going to your local pub, which is what, you know, one of your restaurants, the one that you're, you're most closely associated with these days, Murphy's in Hanover, New Hampshire. That's kind of what it is at the essence, at its essence. And so um, there's some human need for this, I think, right? Oh, I think there's I think there's a big need. If you look at um, the last you know twenty or thirty or forty years, you know the churches are, have been in decline, the socials, all of those things. Um, now we're at the internet, so everybody's hyper connected. But where are the places that you go where you relax? You can you can be yourself. Um, you can meet friends in a very social uh, kind of nice environment, and you're not doing anything. Maybe you're paying, but you're 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 at the whim of everybody else, and it's right. kind of nice. And, yeah. Um, you know, even in Murphy's uh, for Tuck is, I, I'm not sure what Tuck students would do without a place like Murphy's to offset what they do here to, to you know, challenge themselves. So we, we, f- we form a lot of social, uh, social graces for people, I think. What, what got you in the restaurant business in the first place? Um, I worked at uh, restaurants through college. I liked it. Um, the company I uh, worked for through college offered me a position to get into a training program, which I accepted. So I, uh, I think back, back uh, when I graduated from uh, Boston College in 78, 
how you've got a job was a lot different than today, and usually it was through familiar it circles. It was who you, who you knew? It's, yeah, it's who you knew. And yeah, I, the, the, I think that's still in the, in the mix, right? Um, you know, who you know, who you know, the connections that you have, introductions people make for you. Yeah, and something kicks and something clicks and it feels right, and it did for me. I'm a yeah. very gregarious social person, so I think the restaurant business was a, was a natural for me. Right. You, know, you just said, you know, the, how people get jobs and... Now we have a lot, I think, a lot of technical methods and uh, um, um, apps and other things that we'll get, we'll get to as well. But, you know, the good old-fashioned, I know someone who knows someone, that hasn't gone away. I mean, it hasn't been replaced. It's been complemented by something else. But what I'm getting at is uh, it's an advantage for people from certain socioeconomic backgrounds. In other words, if you are... If, if your family, first of all, if you have parents, first of all, if you have parents that are in the community or connected or have friends or their own college, who went to college, their own college roommates, I mean, there's a whole ecosystem of people that, that you can call on and that get called on for opportunities. And I'm just thinking about, you know, so kids that grow up in poor circumstances and might not have, you know, two parents at home, uh, might not have parents who have gone to college and all kinds of other things, they're at a disadvantage from the get-go that has nothing to do with anything other than their socioeconomic position. Well, I, I think that's true, and I think it's funny, though, that the, the millennials um, w thought for a while that the connections you would get to get a job, et cetera, were a little bit disingenuous. They thought it was a little bit... Uh, oh, it wasn't you know, legit, you think? Yeah, and, and I've heard that so many times, and huh. now they're coming back um, maybe because of the social media pounding and... And what happens is that they realize those are the ways you get opportunities. And yeah. it's not disingenuous to use a connection to get somewhere. Why do you think millennials have that kind of mind frame? Um, I don't know. Maybe they uh, viewed their parents working hard for 20 <laughs> years and they or formed longer. their own opinions about where they wanted to be. I don't know. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting thing that uh, they may have had, a, had kind of an ide idealistic approach. Everything is a meritocracy. And, you know... I wake up in the morning and I think, yeah, that would be kind of great, wouldn't it? But unfortunately, or fortunately, the world doesn't doesn't work that way. No, you know, um, um, so a lot of you know younger people listening are saying, well, how how can I do that? Um, the best way is to work hard and just ask <laughs> for it, because the, the, the CEOs, as busy as they are, love to to get their knowledge out to the people that they respect, and the, and it's it's kind of it's it's a natural mentoring that I think they, they don't do enough of, but they really respect when they have it. You actually create quite a bond. Yeah. So let's go back to millennials a little bit in this respect. So, uh, you know, when you're talking about a group of 70 million people, generalizing is kind of ridiculous, but let's do mm. it anyways. Sure. So millennials uh, have this reputation of wanting to have that seat at the table. They want to be, be next to the CEO <clears throat> uh, just because they think they deserve it. And some of them do, and some of them, some of them don't. What you just, what you said before, that I think is really important, is we got to earn it. You got to work like crazy so that the the. Uh, I mean, you're talking about a CEO, but it could be a boss or a boss's boss, right? You know, whoever it is, an, the, an influential, powerful person that could teach you a lot, that you could learn a lot from, that could advance your career. Uh, they have to see it in their interest mm -hmm. to want you around. You've got to make that. You've got to make yourself indispensable, almost. Correct. Well, I I look at the millennials and and how they. Grew up, and hey, I've, I've got four of them, yes. so, so I, I know firsthand. But, I mean, if you look at something like gymnastics, you know, number 16 got a prize. And whether they deserved it or not was probably in question. But they felt that they earned that prize. Therefore, they felt they had a seat at the table. Yeah. But number one was so much better. And I think a lot of the millennials 
um, and and they're smart and they're they're um, um, engaged and they have so much more knowledge at the age uh, you know when I was doing this today. But I think the, there's a sense that they that the work the real hard work. They don't have to do as much of it to get mm-hmm. to the top, but I think they realize after they're in, you know, in business, et cetera, that you really do have to work hard, right. that what they learn perhaps as a student or, or as a sport athlete is not as true as the real world. Yeah, so that's interesting. That's kind of alluding to the self-esteem trend or movement, and that's controversial because there will be a lot of people that say, you know, that's, what, what, are you, what, are you, what are you old guys talking about? Uh, you have to support people. You have to give them that self-esteem. People have to feel good about them about themselves. I mean, there's something to that, right? Yeah, I think that there there certainly is, and I think the you know the business model. I'm involved in tech startups too, and you know there, there's a way to manage the different uh, millennials and and uh, all the other uh, sectors, and you have to incorporate that. But I think the other thing too is you have to give some reality to them that you do have to work hard, and nothing is free. And the ones that rise to the top normally earned it, right, and right. and so they have to have to really sort of recalibrate that when they get out to yeah. a reality check. Right. Um, but they're all capable of it. They're very very smart. The, the training, the capability, the techni- the technical know how of you know pretty much anyone who's under twenty five or thirty, maybe thirty five, is incredible compared to what it used to be. So it's all true. Did, so did you have? Um, uh, kind of reflecting back as, you know, the CEO yourself for a long time running restaurants, uh, did you have m- millennials in particular or younger people just even in a different generation where where you had to have this type of conversation with them about, you know, um, you know, you may have been number 16 and got the got the ribbon, but this is a little bit different. Oh, I think so. I, I mean, there's if, if I look back on, on all of the places I've owned and run whatever, I think there's a constant amount of uh, of counseling to people about their their approach, their attitudes. Uh, you know whether they're too big for their boots, and and how to get them always, no matter what the employee, whether it be a dishwasher all the way through, you know, a sous chef or whatever, about how can they achieve and how do they get the balance and what is reality, and and why and how are they going to be successful? And I think you have to recalibrate your employees all the time mm-hmm. to the reality. Um, and the ones that really get it will do great. And the ones that don't, no, they, they, they just go along their own path, and they realize after a while that they needed to do some things. Yeah, yeah. and sometimes they're not going to keep working for you, uh, either self-selected or you will. Well, the restaurant business is a bit transient, for sure. Yeah, very high turnover rate. Very high turnover, except at Murphy's. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimers are in. <laughs> That's your one disclaimer for the whole podcast. That's right. Okay. Uh, all right. <laughs> uh, so let's imagine that I'm one of your um, young uh, 25 to 35-year-old um, um, people. Uh, let's say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a assistant manager in the restaurant. So pretty significant job, but not running the place. And, and I'm anxious. I want to learn. But I also, I also think like I should have your job because, you know, I'm smart. Um, what, do you, what, do you, what would you coach me? How, what would you say? How, would you, how well, have you said things? Knowing you, I don't know if I would actually hire you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would. Um, I think, you know, we, my style is, is, is pretty straightforward. You know, we have a plan and a, and a strategy for, for management. And I'll let managers um, um, actually go out there, make mistakes, um, um, try things, and as long as they have the capability to understand error as opposed to gain, 
Um, I think that works because what I what I never want in a manager is a yes person or just trying to please you, whatever. I want them to develop. And I've always had the philosophy that if, an, if a manager develops, while they're developing, they're helping out my business immensely. Yes. And they're also getting the gain to, to help and, and, and advance themselves. And if they do leave for advancement in a bigger role or, or they open their own place, I'm a happy guy. Because you are. I got their human capital um, yes. potential while they were here. While they were there. And, yeah. and how do you feel about the fact that they're taking that capability and they're doing something else somewhere else and you're no longer capitalizing or benefiting from it? Um, I, I think that's what you do for, you know, if, if a good boss wants uh, their people to advance and, and become, you know, financially better off and, and much more mature in their practices. And right, it's, it's right. no different than raising kids. You want a great result. Yeah. And I think that drives me. And that's always been um, sort of the fun in the business that you can mentor people. And when they are successful and maybe they come back in the future and hey, say, hey, thanks, you gave me the leg up. And I said, no, actually, you did that. It was, yeah. It's a mutual thing. That's, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a habit in these podcast episodes to do a plug for myself. Uh, probably anyone listening has already noticed, but that's a super boss thing you just talked about, right? <laughs> yeah. Which you know. Uh, yeah. When people leave, this is, this is really a, this is difficult for a lot of people. You have a key person on your team, and you're dependent on them to some extent. And they leave because they have a bigger opportunity. They want to run their own show or someone has hired them for a bigger job. And how do you react to that? And what you're describing is, um, well, you know, you're happy for them because you've helped them. I mean, they've done it, but you've helped them get to the next stage. Uh, sometimes you get something quite different, which is, you know, how could you do this to me? Lack of, you know, you, you didn't respect me. You should have told me this months ago. You know, you, you see that also, right? Absolutely. But I, I think the good ones do it in, in the right way. But, you know, honestly, as soon as you hear a, a, a great employee uh, that that wants to leave, I mean, you kind of, you, you're so genuine to them, but you kind of bite your lip a little bit because, you yeah. know, on the backside of that, you're going to have to do a lot of more work to get somebody to get back to that level right. and the vacuum that they're leaving. But I, I've always, um, I've, it, it's funny, the, I've had good people who have left and it didn't go quite well. And the good people who want to come back, and you have to be careful, come back even better if you bid the right ones. But the fact that they come back means that, that you did something to them yes, that they respect. Does. And I found that very much the, the case in a, lot, in a lot of companies when you have the, the leader that really supports their protégés. And they move on, they have bigger jobs. Uh, sometimes they do want to come back, and they come back in a different, in a different place. And now it's the, their capability is much broader because they don't only have their experience working for you and, and that context in your business, but now they've seen something totally different and they could bring that back. It's, uh, I mean, that's a great thing when that happens, I think. Yeah, I mean, just recently my old GM who had left came back and he's, really? he's on fire. Yeah. And he's, he's uh, got a, a new, you know, kick in his step. Because he learned a lot out there, and he's doing great, and it's great for me. Yeah, and it's great for you. You also mentioned failure and learning from failure. So let's talk a little bit about about that. In the restaurant business, um, there is a very high failure rate in the restaurant business. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe you know the data, but uh, um, when I I eyeball I, I this, you know, say I'm in New York a lot, and you walk down different streets that you know, there are a lot of openings and closings. And I, and I often say, especially in New York, because the real estate prices are just completely nuts, mm -hmm. Um, you walk by on a Thursday or a Friday night, let alone a Saturday night, and the place is not packed, it, they're in trouble. I mean, that's kind of how, that, that, that's how tough it is, right? So what, what, what are your experience? I mean, 
is there is there a story or an example you want to share? Sure. Um, I think the number, by the way, is it's in the ninety percent uh, range for restaurant failures. Ninety in the percent? first three years. Yeah. Oh my god! And um, and it, it even probably even more today because uh, social media, you know, TripAdvisor, Yelp, and all that uh-huh. can be visibly brutal and can <laughs> can accelerate the demise of a restaurant in a hurry because everybody's checking out the yep. the ratings. Yep. But I've had um, so I've opened. Um, over the, I've opened 36 restaurants for myself and other people, but about 13 of my own. And um, probably half of them have failed by not going past three years. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them were, uh, were to do with recession. Some of them were to, to do the fact that I had too much going on, et cetera, and making some bad concept moves, whatever. But um, they're painful um, yeah. financially. Um, you get hit. There's a disruption. Um, everybody knows about it. I mean, I've had, I've had uh, a failure in Hanover, and, and it's funny when you walk down the street, people know you failed, but you got to be, <laughs> hey, how you doing? You know, it's a small town. Yes. Yeah, and, and you know, and I think uh, that hurt, if the employees get hurt and all that. So I, I personally take it on the shoulders a bit because I mean, I'm if if I developed the concept and it failed. I'm the one responsible for its success or its failure, um, more for its failure than its success, because mm-hmm. a lot of people do that. Mm. But I, I learned from it. Um, when I, I, I'll tell you a funny story, Sid. I had uh, uh, Mojo's, which is where uh, Canoe Club ended up, up coming, and um, it was a Mexican restaurant, and the, and, the, and the food was good and everything, but it just wasn't ready for the town and for the, the strata of customers. So when it closed, uh, I took it on the chin a bit, but we had some Mexican decor, um, these big cactus um, plants made of metal. Okay. And I took them to my house, and I put them in a little garden, and I called it my Mexican thinking garden. So that if I was going to do any any decision making, I was going to sit you, in there you, and contemplate. You, <laughs> you're going to see how expensive those cactus turned out to be. Exactly. Yeah, they were prickly. <laughs> they were prickly. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, that that restaurant, uh, and when you mentioned Canoe Club, so these are this is on Main Street in Hanover. Yep. Uh, it, even saying that sounds kind of funny, right? What a throwback to the old days in yeah. uh, Hanover, New Hampshire, where Dartmouth College is is a kind of, is a tiny town and a uh, wonderful town to to, to live in. Um, and not that many restaurants, more than there used to be, but not that many. Yeah. And uh, kind of your flagship Murphy's is is in a prime spot right across from the Hanover Inn, which is a central kind of meeting place in in town. And the Canoe Club that you mentioned, or Mojo's before that. Um, that that was a restaurant that didn't exist at all before you took over that space. What was it? It was a. Um, it was part of the the bookstore group. I part think. Of the books, or, or, part or, of the bookstore yeah. group. Yeah, and um, um, yeah, and I remember going uh, going there a couple of times. And I guess you're thinking to yourself, well, you should have gone more than a couple of times, or we'd be in business. <laughs> <laughs> well, the customer uh, chooses. The customer the customer chooses, and uh, uh, after that, uh, another concept came in, came in and did uh, pretty well for a long period of time. And then um, I think that that owner uh, was ready to retire or move on to other things, and uh, and a different group uh, came in and didn't stay open very long. And uh, um, you're an observer and an analyst, uh, so what's what's your what's your take on on that? Because uh, this is going to be controversial in a very tiny local community, meaning a few people that you and I know. But most people listening will will I think learn something from this. Yeah. Um, so it's worth talking about. Yeah, and I don't mind it because I know you know some of the participants there. Um, 
But Mojo's failed, um, and I sold it to the, the owner. And then this, it would be actually be a great tuck case study is that you um, – you fail in a restaurant. You sell it. They sell the the rights to have a restaurant there to somebody else, and they come along and they kick you right in the head for a few years, <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah. what happened. Um, <laughs> which actually was good because it made us more competitive. Um, you to, changed to com- some of your own yeah, concept to, to do that, and obviously we've withstood that because we're here and they're not. <laughs> but um, no, I think uh, the, the, the restaurant was already in decline when it was being sold. I mean, you either sell a restaurant because. Um, you know, you've, you're, you're busting at the seams and you can make a good profit and move on and you and you do something or on the decline. A lot of restaurants are sold on the decline. And I think to overcome a decline, somebody else's decline is extremely hard. I, I think in, in, in life, if you're liking the, to a failed marriage and getting married again, there's a lot of baggage there that yeah. everybody has to overcome and it's, yeah. it's pretty delicate. And I think, uh, they made some mistakes. They, um, you know, I, I I often thought if it was to sell, they should have just closed it, re-geared it, pumped some money in. The money you pump in um, to to give a new concept is far less than the money you would you would lose if you went out and failed over that period of time. Mm-hmm. And I think um, um, honestly, we at Murphy's uh, too, we juiced up our game um, and renovated at the same time to add more pressure because we're in competition. Um, but I, I know the owners. I know um, Liam. He's a, he was an employee of mine for 20 years. He's a great fella, and we're still good buds. And um, although at the time we were competing, we probably didn't talk as much as, <laughs> as we had before. But uh, right. um, but I, I feel bad. You know, any restaurant that fails uh, affects a lot of people. The downtown doesn't look the same. There's a negative buzz. In fact, Hanover's got a few businesses, um, the bookstore and EBAs, that have sort of made it look a little bit recessionary, but really it's just about the innovation and lack of, of, of um, innovation to make those businesses thrive over a period of time that's caused it. It's not really uh, anything else. Right. And w- when you think about storefronts closing, these are restaurants you're talking about, and there'll be new concepts coming in for sure. It's too good of a town and an opportunity. Yeah. Uh, but it makes me think of Amazon. And uh, earlier, years ago, we used to say Walmart, of course. Walmart would be responsible by opening up their big superstores to um, for a lot of small shops, mom and pop shops, to close because they couldn't compete. They couldn't. They couldn't match the the, the cost structure. Uh, and now Amazon, everything's going going digital, and the retail business is is struggling. Uh, Amazon's gone into the food business, not the. Uh, restaurant business, although they do food delivery. Everyone's in the food delivery business. Um, and they bought Whole Foods, as, as you know. So as uh, you know, someone who follows not just the restaurant business and the food industry, but you know, business in general, um, what, what's it going to take to deal with Amazon? Is there, any, is there any, is anyone out there that's positioned to deal with it, uh, to challenge them? Um, what's going to happen? Because uh, I do know no company keeps growing forever and ever. It's the, in the history of business, there aren't any examples. So there will be things that will happen. But I know that Be- Jeff Bezos and others at Amazon, they act, they're, they're, they're completely aware of that. Uh, they're among the smartest people I've ever encountered in business. And what they're trying to do is redefine what, what business is and redefine what an organization can do because or, there are natural organizational limits. Um, we get too big, the bureaucracy starts to take over. So they're doing, I think, all the right moves, but what they're doing is unprecedented. You know, it's, it is. I think about that stuff. I mean, if we look at even the restaurant business, supermarkets became restaurants 
in the last 20 years. Yeah, and their yeah. food, their, their to-go food and everything has accelerated, and they've become the fast restaurants. And now, of course, Blue Apron and all those are delivering all those foods. As right, like Blue Amazon's Apron is too. getting killed, and the, yeah. they don't have a business model that's going to work. Yeah, so here's what happens is it's I think there's a bit of a hula hoop. Um, you know, everybody gets on board. Amazon, I mean, um, we use Amazon at, at Murph's for, for some office supplies and things like that. And, and now they're getting the food business. They're constantly innovating themselves. At some point, Main Street comes back. And what happens is I think people get tired of the Amazon processes and, and all the things that are easy. And it comes in and, and the thrill of that's gone. And you have to return 10 things. And it just gets a bit mucky. And I think eventually you say, hey, I'm just going to go down and buy, buy a, a, a nice shirt at a store where I get good service and I feel good, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, mm-hmm. and the same thing maybe with food, et cetera. You know, it's it, it, like Main Street. We have, you know, people get sick of and tired of the big chains and they want to go to something that's a little bit more focused. Right. So I think eventually, you know, our kind of stuff won't go away to the request of those who are doing it. But Amazon could get too big for its boots. It, it, it has to keep growing because that's those companies need to grow or they start slipping backwards. So mm. are they going to make they're going to make some mistakes at some point? I think they are. And um, but not by challenge, but by their own mistakes. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Amazon is, is, uh, is just so interesting because they, they built this amazing culture around innovation. Uh, Jeff Bezos has talked about being a day one company and never becoming a day two company. And by that, he means, I think, day one company is the, is the startup. Now, a startup that is worth a trillion dollars or close to that is kind of a funny startup. Uh, but he's trying to, and I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of employees they have now, uh, but he's trying to maintain um, and create and recreate that, that culture, uh, it, which is fantastic. to be. If you can do that, if you can create the energy that people want to be part of that and be that gigantic, um, but it's a it's it's a gigantic. It, I mean, it's a huge it's a huge effort. Well, look look at let's look at recently though, Sid. I look at when they raised the minimum wage to fifteen, and they were trumpeted and heralded by Washington, and it's all great. And then I said, well, they didn't pay people for five years at the lower wages. So how mm-hmm. triumphant were they because they they were taking advantage of people before that? The same thing happened to Walmart. The wage, the union, everything gets involved, and at some point you get big enough where the employee base. Right. has got a pretty big voice. So mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting to see mm-hmm. how they control their, their right. costs, et cetera. Right. Anyway. One, one, one more thing before we take a break. Uh, you mentioned, you know, at some point Main Street comes back. And in some ways Main Street is the heart of American business, or not just America, all over the world. Um, it's where people go. And, the, you know, we started our, our conversation by talking about community, what, what bartenders bring in, in creating that sense of community. And, and Main, Street, uh, Main Street does that. But there's an entire generation that has been brought up on using um, the Internet for everything. Uh, and these are millennials, of course. That is the biggest. They are the biggest buying group and will, will be more so um, as, we go, as we go forward. And, um, and, the, and the, the deal that is typically made by a Main Street store um, is um, we have, we're, we're in the community. We're local. We support, um, you know, it could be... A, it could be a, um, a, a the Boy Scouts. It could be a, t- a local team. Um, it could be some community organizations. Um, and you know them, and you know their kids uh, because their kids are going with your kids to school. And those things are, I mean, that's what community is. That's kind of, that's that's what that that that's central to who we are as people. But uh, their prices are not as good. They're not as convenient. 
um, they're not going to deliver it right to your house. And if they did, it would cost them way more per uh, item than, than Amazon would uh, or any other kind of large company. And so there's a, it's a different value proposition they're offering. And I'd like to think that that value proposition is still important and will become and will be able to maintain that importance, maybe even, maybe even grow. But it's a value proposition that is inconsistent with how many, many millennials um, do their thing. I mean, uh, we have students, uh, uh, MBA students sometimes come over to, for dinner. And one, one time as a group, and one guy, he, he broke something. He was washing the dish. I don't know what he was doing. He broke something. It was like 10 bucks. I don't know what it was. And I said, don't worry about it. It's nothing. Uh, he said, OK, OK, Professor Finkelstein. And he goes on his mobile, his Amazon app, and he just ordered it, and it's coming to my house the next day. Now, aside from the wastefulness of the delivery and the packaging and all that other stuff, which I'm still waiting to see when that be there becomes a backlash to that because that's crazy. Uh, that's how, that's how you know, millennials operate. Yeah, but you know what's happening, and, I, and I'll just quickly talk about the Upper Valley. So, and I even connected to Tuck. So a lot of Tuck students have a great experience here at, in, um, in Hanover. And if they could get the right job, paying jobs here, they'd probably stick around especially those with families, whatever. Mm. But the Valley in the last 20, and I've been in business 28 years now, it's changing. And what's happening is, um, I mean, I think you'd be surprised, there's 86 um, tech startups in the Upper Valley now. 86. 86. Mm. Who would have thought that? Yeah. I, I bet yeah. you, if I'd asked you, you would have said maybe 10. Uh, yeah, yeah. And what's happening is they're creating the jobs and they're creating um, a need for, a, a, a place for people to come back. And I think the millennials, when they start having families and kids, will start yearning for the places they came from um, to, to raise their families. And if those places like the Upper Valley are providing um, really good paying jobs and that wholesomeness of life that maybe you don't get in the city, I think there's a trend. So all of these communities like the Upper Valley, secondary cities all across the country are rebirthing themselves yes. to try and get that back. And, and I think they're going to win eventually because when you get down to it, as you get a little older, you want the community. You want the friendships. You want the right. school systems. You want all those things, and you want the jobs. And I think in a, in a, in a not-so-much-strategic way, that's happening. It's happening almost organically because that's what people want. That's, that's what, what people saying. want. Yeah, and when you say 86, 86 sounds like, of course, beyond a minuscule number except when you look at the population base and you say – well, if you look at Hanover, I don't know, maybe there's 8,000 people in the town of Hanover. So we're at, uh, that, that would be a one, over 1% uh, um, of the population. Well, it's not correct to say 1% of the population are in startups, but um, um, just on a numbers basis, if there are 8,000 people and there are 86 startups, that's a, that's a high percentage rel relative it's to It's accelerating, the, yeah. Right, relative to the population. That would probably match up pretty well with a lot of big places that have you know, thousands of startups because the population is in the millions. That's it. And yeah. I'm, I'm involved in a startup that um, is four years old and has 100 employees now in the Upper Valley. All, all in the Upper Valley? Uh, well, a third of them are. Then there's, there's satellite people. Okay. And hold, it's hold, booming. Hold that thought, Nigel. We'll take a short break, and then we'll hear about that and kind of some of the challenges of going from running restaurants to running startups. Sounds great. Back in a minute with Nigel Leeming. Nigel and I were talking about Super Bosses just a few minutes ago, and uh, that, of course, is uh, is the best-selling book I wrote uh, um, back in 2016. 
And uh, so if you want to know more about that, take a look at superbosses.com. It's really all about a book uh, and a bunch of ideas uh, about talent, about how you identify the world's best talent, how do you develop them, how do you help them accomplish more than they ever thought possible. And uh, there's no one in business, uh, really, never mind business, there's no one who runs any type of organization or has any job that has people that work for her or work for him that doesn't care about finding great talent. Superbosses might be useful. Take a look. We're back with uh, Nigel Leeming. Nigel, good conversation about all kinds of business things, kind of freewheeling, kind of like you are. Uh, and before the break, we you're just starting to talk about a startup you're involved with. And so first of all, being in the restaurant business your whole life, your whole career, how do you get to a, a, a startup that has, I think, nothing directly to do with the restaurant business? Is that right? Absolutely. Well, it, it's a tech startup that does recruitment. Um, it optimizes recruitment ads on the Internet for, for companies. And I've got nothing to do with the uh, the technology behind it, but I'm in operations there. So the CEO and I got together, and I um, do a lot of the operational things that help that company grow behind the scenes. So it's natural for me because that's just like a big restaurant. You know, they're multi-complex. It's like a big restaurant. How like so? Like a big restaurant. Well, there's always something going on. There's systems, and, and uh, you have to uh, provide the right uh, platform for the people, the right environment. Uh, the right facilities and everything, and and that's sort of what I've done my whole career. You yeah. know, is is uh, provide infrastructure and and the right place for everything to happen, and we do that. And I have a lot of fun. I did it because um, I, I was getting a little tired of the restaurant business, um, although I own it, um, and and I like work. And I hooked up with uh, uh, the CEO, who's brilliant in the in this space. And uh, we get along, and, and uh, in the company, I do a lot of independent things, so it's kind of fun for me. Yeah. And I'm connected to millennials, which, right. which I'm learning a lot about. That, that's right. There's the connection. But, but it's fun, and, and you know, obviously there's uh, money motivation too. Um, but um, I, I found it – I'm working really hard, but I, I never shied away from work, so it's kind of fun. Right. So two, two things you bring up that I want to I kind of take a second on. The first is the similarity of running a restaurant to running kind of the operations for this, for this tech startup, which most people would not see that connected at all, but you just explained that it is. And that suggests to me that there are some managerial skills or skills in general that are transferable across different uh, spheres, different areas. And, and then I think about, well, you know, people early in their career, that's something they should think about. That's because that gives them, um, you know, when you go through your, when people think about their careers, uh, not too many people are thinking they're going to be somewhere for 40 years or even maybe five years. Uh, they're going to have to recreate themselves. They're going to have to, uh, they're almost certainly going to want to go do different things. Um, and, and so having some set of transferable skills is going to make that a lot, a lot easier. And some things are, and probably some things, some things are not. I mean, if you're a chef, and this is going to be a question, I suppose anything can be transferable if we're very creative about it. But if you're the actual chef, so it's it's you're making the food, you're creating the the menus, the recipes, and you're cooking. Um, you you can't work in a tech startup that has nothing to do with the restaurant business. It would be more difficult. I'm not saying you can't. I don't know. If I mean the restaurant business, we're a startup. We started you, from scratch. You, yeah, but you've been in business twenty-seven years or something like this. Well, I've done thirty-six startups. <laughs> so, but the, I think it's the methodology. So, what you're doing, you know, your sleeve rolls your sleeves up and you just get stuff done. Uh, and I think that attitude in a startup is totally transferable. Could a chef uh, go into a startup and 
and not so much from programming and software and all that, and, and use their, their organizational skills and, and how they put together the layers of, of a menu and everything and make it work? Sure they could. depends on the personality. So it I, I think businesses are, are opening up mm. more and more to transferring skills that may not have been obvious that actually work mm. in, in their businesses because we're tight on employees everywhere, and we have to be creative about um, – um, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I think look at the older generation. They were cast off as they're too old now. But now a lot of companies are realizing the tacit knowledge that's within those people is fantastic for yes. business because they don't have it. They, they don't have it. This is so interesting because um, I think we're moving towards – see, what you're saying is, is I, think, I think it's right. But we're also moving towards a world of greater and greater specialization through education, uh, you know, so many people not only have a college degree, but they have graduate degrees as well. And you become really, really specialized, which by definition implies that you have less transferable skills because you, you, become, you become the expert. You become nar- more narrowly and narrowly uh, uh, focused. So back to the, uh, to, to the startup. So what have been some of the, some of the new learnings for you in, 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 in being in that world compared uh, to what you've done in the past? You know, I, I think, again, not to overdo the millennial thing, but uh, how smart they are, how competent they are with uh, laptops and spreadsheets. And, and, and even my, one of my daughters is, has her own startup that's doing very well. Um, she makes uh, a, a game that kids learn how to program to accelerate their programming. And what she knows at 27 is vastly more mm-hmm. in business that I knew at that age. I was yeah. more hands-on learn from other people. They're learning on the internet so fast, and their knowledge curve is, is way out there. And, um, mm. um, and so the, the company attracts those people that understand the world they live in, and they can do very well in it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So now I'm going to bring up our producers watching us right now, Ben Manning. Uh, he didn't have a clue how to put together a podcast or, a pod, or, or, or this whole kind of podcast organization that we have. But what did you tell me? You were... Busy on YouTube, looking at how uh, different, uh, di- researching different uh, um, um, speaker systems and microphones and uh, checking YouTube tapes about how to use uh, garage, garage band and everything. <laughs> but he's, he's figured it out because as far as I know, we're being recorded. Is that right? right? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, well, they got more tools than we had. I don't we, know. we had to call up Joe around the corner to figure so, out so how to change it. It's a little bit ironic, though, because they've got this ingenuity to figure stuff out and know where to look. On the other hand, they don't, have, they don't know anything about some basic stuff that's even simpler. That's it? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. because the service industry is now does everything for you, including Amazon. You yeah. know, as, as we go back to that, it just comes to your door. Right. You don't have to think about it. Right. You know? So, uh, Nigel, you have, uh, you have four kids, and you've, uh, you've been married a long time as well, 38 years, I think you were saying. And, uh, um, and you've had all these businesses, and you've worked hard, and you like to work hard. And so let me ask you about... Uh, this thing, this thing, everyone talks about work-life balance, and I'll tell you what I think about it also. But uh, is there such a thing as work-life balance, or how have you done it? Uh, yeah, how, how have you done it? Because you've had uh, how many restaurants over the years? Uh, Thirteen of my own. Thirteen of your own. Um, you still are in the restaurant business. You're still the primary owner mm-hmm. of uh, Murphy's, which is kind of the centerpiece of the restaurant business for you. And you've got this startup uh, work you're doing, and you've done other projects along the way. Um, and um, I know you're kind of a hands-on, active dad, and uh, 
uh, and I see you and your wife every now and then around town, and so you're, you're doing it all, as they say. Uh, so what, what the heck is this work-life balance? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, um, obviously, you have to work, because work is what pays for the family. Um, but I've, um, I think, they, for me, it's a mesh. I mean, work and family, um, and maybe being in the restaurant business was easy in that respect, because they could always come and hang out at the restaurant, have something to eat, and, and we could bond. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I think I, I paid particular attention in the early days when I was working really hard, and they, you know, restaurants are notorious for it's. It was a lot like the uh, medical residents who work 100 hours a week. They want to test them and see what they're made of and everything else. Yeah. So I went through that. But I just learned to pick the slots, to cover myself, to go to the games and do all that, to be involved with the kids. I mean, I, I, there's no question in my life the, uh, the proudest thing that we've ever done, uh, my wife and I, is make four great kids who love coming home and, and love hanging out with us because we, we worked hard uh, to keep that balance in there. But I think it's a mesh. I, I don't think there's one that it's not a delineation. One separates the other. Mm-hmm. You mesh them together. Mm-hmm. And when when you're not living up to your expectations on one thing, you just got to work harder at it to make sure that it doesn't slip. Yeah. Um, a lot of communication, a lot of, um, especially with our kids, we were very communicative about them, about, you know, we have to work, here's why. And, and, we, and we made them understand what the whole, you know, uh, whole ball of wax was about, mm-hmm. and to me now the most satisfying thing is um, I'm 62. Is I got a great fam, and it was because we made those things mesh. Yeah, it, yeah. it is. It is as you get older, everything shrinks, and, <laughs> and, and, and it's it's the family, you know. Right, right. There's uh, and do you think there are times because when you talked about the hundred hours a week, I uh, think there there's some ebbs and flows. Right, going a hundred hours a week forever is not a sustainable way to live. Uh, it's uh, it means you don't sleep much, and and we know sleep. We're learning more and more that, and some people I don't know, I don't know about you, but some people amazingly get by with four hours sleep. I can't understand it, uh, and there's variation. Maybe it's okay, but the research shows that sleep regenerates your organs, your body, your brain. It's it's critical. So going a hundred hours a week uh, forever uh, is really very very difficult. Uh, but there's some ebbs and flows where that's what you're doing because that's what the challenge is, and you make other stuff work, and then the, and then there's kind of um, a, a place where you kind of open up to some other opportunities. So I, I know I've done that, but I'm wondering whether that jives with your own experience. Or are you have you actually figured out how to work that hundred hours a week for years? No, I mean I think in the beginning you know you had to because that's what the company wanted. I remember in the in the early days of restaurant training they would do. You would do six doubles in a row, which means you were there at eight in the morning till till midnight, and then one day off. They were trying to bust you and see what you were made of. I don't. I've worked. You know, when you open a restaurant, any of them, it's a hundred hours a week for X amount of time until you get control of it. Yeah. And then you ebb off. I mean, right now I probably work you know sixty hours a week between between the two. Yep. And to me, that's kind of normal. Yeah. Um, I've when I've messed up restaurants and and had to go into them. Um, I did it with Murphy's once and. I can do a five-month, 100 hours a week to because to, that's what it takes to re-gear them because they slip. Restaurants either go, they, they calibrate up or they calibrate yeah. down, and uh, you get it, and it takes the same uh, amount of time to fix what you hear. Do you see that happening, like, ahead of time? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, you know, you read it on the profit and loss yeah, and, the, yeah. and, the, and the balance sheet yeah. And, yeah. And, and the feedback from employees. And once you do that, I mean, I just honestly, I just did it with Murphy's. I was... I off the ball had some you know some people in charge that weren't as good and I had to go back in 
and and do it. And then um, after a while, you watch the results, and everybody's happy. But boy, it takes that time. So you can do it in spurts. Um, was it more painful? As you get older to do 100 hours, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the legs don't work oh, so well yeah. in the morning. That's right. But I remember, you know, yeah. I remember when I got to uh, Dartmouth, this is 25 years ago, I already had um, some academic experience and I was quite accomplished as a young researcher, um, but I wasn't tenured and, uh, um, and I was going to teach uh, MBA students um, at, at a place like Tuck School of Business where, where you know, they're very, very qualified, very capable. Um, and um, not all that much um, young, uh, just the, I mean, younger than I am, but not by that, not by that much. And I, I remember um, I started in, on January 1st. This is 1994. And I remember uh, every single day, Saturday, Sunday, didn't matter, uh, 7 a.m., I was, I was here. I was in my office, and uh, I worked 12 hours straight, um, and those days, we just moved here from Southern California, so that's kind of crazy. Uh, so we had one car, and our daughter was uh, two, two and a half years old, almost three, um, and um, we lived a bit further from town, and so um, it would have been a long walk, and I couldn't take the car because my wife needed the car. Uh, so she drove me, and you can't leave a baby at home. Uh, so she was bundled up in January and winter uh, in the back seat in the car seat, uh, she didn't seem to mind because, you know, that the baby is up, a little, a little toddler is certainly up at 7 a.m. Um, and uh, drive, drive me in, drop me off for 7. And uh, by the time uh, we got to around 7 in the evening, they'd come back and pick me up. And uh, uh, the time would fly by, you know, like that. It would be nothing, uh, which is always a good sign that you got a great job. You yep. know, when the like time you, just, you know, you just... <clears throat> doesn't uh, mean anything. Yeah, the, the other sign of a great job, I say, I, I coach a lot of young people, a lot of my students as well, about careers and things like that. And I say, you know, when uh, Sunday night feels the same as Friday night, you know you have the right job. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and I remember a long time ago, in kind of a, a part-time job I had, summer job, so it was full-time, but it was summer. Uh, I didn't like it. Uh, and I remember those Sunday nights, and I used to always go to the movies with friends just to prolong that weekend and not have to think about it. And that was the last time, so this is, you know, 35 years or 40 years ago or whatever it was, uh, <clears throat> that I ever had a job like that that I didn't um, well, you, I didn't love the idea of money. You just money. sparked a thought for me, Sid. I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment called Cocktail Napkin Happiness, and it's about how you get happy in America. And one of the chapters is called Sunday Night at 10 p.m., Ah, and that's nice. the look forward, look back yeah. time when you make your best decisions. But yeah. I, I want to tell you about work-life balance because you asked that. I, a funny story popped into my head. Um, <clears throat> I'm on a, on a business trip. I'm gone for three or four days. And Brianne, who's our second daughter, um, had to get somewhere. And, she, and, and Liz uh, couldn't take her. And, and it was just tight. She said, well, she said, well, Dad, why can't Dad pick me up and take me? And she said... Well, I don't know if you've noticed, Bree, but um, he's been gone for four days, <laughs> and and you didn't even notice. So maybe life work balance sometimes works itself out. It works know? itself out. That's <laughs> funny. That's funny. And uh, the, the the idea of work life balance, a lot of people have talked about it more and more, and and it, it's become a millennial thing as well. But I I don't, I don't really understand it um, because there is there are no separate lives. Um, yes, I understand you're at work, and I understand you're not at work. Uh, but the best jobs, as uh, we're both kind of describing, is work doesn't feel like work. 
Yeah. Work feels like, like play. I mean, it's great you get paid for it. It's great you get a lot of other things for it. Um, and that enables you to do it, but it just feels, it feels, it feels great. And, and, um, um, and also, we're, and this is, again, one of the themes of this whole podcast, we're just one person. So when we were talking about your personal life and your kids and your family, and we're talking about your you know, work at Murphy's and the restaurant business, your startup, it's still you. It's still Nigel talking. And it's with that one brain, that one body of experience. And, and we talk about these different things, but uh, what you've done in your personal life and what you've done in work life, they stem from the same this, this, this kind of the same underlying core of who, who you are, the DNA that uh, mm-hmm. um, the genetic material you were born with and the experiences that, that, that you had. And so we create this artificial thing of separating the two. Uh, and and I, I think that's just a very difficult thing to do now given the... Uh, and this is not always a great thing, but it's a difficult thing to do now given the world we're in because people are always on because of our phones. Uh, which, you know, and that does require some... Some constraint as well. You don't, yeah. you know, you don't want you. You don't. If you've got a job uh, where you're you're involved with a with a team and doing a lot of things, you, do you really want to be on call twenty four seven? A lot of people are, and maybe you know, maybe we need some practical limits there. Well, I think you know, I think you know, work life balance too has become a force issue for companies by whether it be employees complaining or whatever or continue and the company has to manufacture something. I know at our startup, uh, at, at the startup, uh, um, CEO has said, look, it's wide open um, vacation. Um, you can, you know, you can, there's flexible work time. You work at home and everything else. And you know what happens? The right people who are in there work hard. You, the, Their computers are on 11 o'clock at night at home and, and they do it and they love it and they just make that balance work. Right. But I think when companies try to force what a work-life balance is, mm-hmm. they're messing around with what you said, which is those things that are inseparable in your DNA. And, yeah. And I don't know. Um, I think the whole American um, workforce is rethinking the 40-hour and what does it mean and flexibility and everything else to create the new sort of look of how a company is. It's changing dramatically. There is a lot of that. There's working from home, which is very common. Um, open workspace. Open there's workspace. That's Unbelievable. Right. I never thought it would work, but you know what? It works. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that's an interesting thing because it was this giant innovation out of these open, open spaces uh, because now, now we're not, symbolically, we're not locking ourselves into these walls. That means this is my space, this is my kingdom. And, and when it's an open workspace, you can communicate more, you can interact, you can have these kind of conversations that spark creativity, innovation, and that are fun. But then we found out there's no privacy. Uh, and everyone knows your business, and then sometimes you have to concentrate. And so you see a lot of people with their earphones on. Uh, so that they can, they can noise canceling earphones, or there's music on, or whatever, so they don't hear anybody else. Uh, well, breakout rooms. I mean, our, the company has got uh, seven tiny little offices where you can go make those calls or big sales calls or whatever. But people get along. I think that this generation really likes the openness and its connectivity. But you know, it can be a detriment too. This over socialization. Sometimes the water cooler is actually everywhere. <laughs> you know, so you have to be careful. But um, I, I think it goes back to work-life balance, hard, whatever. You've got to find, uh, and it's it's a troubling part of American business at the moment, is the percentage of people who, who don't like their jobs, companies, bosses, CEOs, is in the 60% range. Wow. And you just got to find the work that pleases you, that it's Sunday night you feel good going to. And if you do all that, the work-life balance, everything works out because you're actually enjoying right. yourself. Right. So so someone's listening to this and they're saying, yeah, that sounds great, guys, but, you know, uh, I got a family. I can't just get up and leave my job. Uh, and I don't like it, but uh, I'm, I'm, I feel kind of stuck. What, what 
could you and I say to, to, to that person? What can we, what can we tell her? Yeah, to come tell to her? Murphy's and start working. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, I, I think going back to high school and college, I don't think uh, the American workforce is prepared enough for the strategy of wh- where they end up in work. Um, you know, I remember, and not to knock guidance counselors, but they used to say, you know, here's your scores. These are the colleges you can go to. Yep. But are they the right ones that bring out your right. your inner self and your your aspirations and everything else? Um, and I think uh, um, it's. I think today it's probably going to be a little bit more easier for people because they can go on the internet and look at a company and look at what they're about and are they philanthropic and are they all those things and does that fit me and they can go on Glassdoor and find out what everybody's yeah. saying and they maybe get a bit of a feel. Lots of information. But it's hard to make a shift. Yeah. It's always risky. Because you lock yourself into a certain way of living and the truth is that it's going to be, rec- you're going to have to shift whether you like it or not because so many jobs are going to end up changing or even being dropped because of artificial intelligence, robotics, and all kinds of things that are already here and are happening. People are going to have to relearn or unlearn things and relearn and learn new, new things. So in a way, you have no choice. So the, the person, kind of this, this imaginary person I just mentioned that's listening and saying, you guys can talk all you like, but i got to go to work and, and make, make some money for my family. It's true, um, but I don't know that he's got a choice. That's the, that's the thing. He's going to have to change. He's going to have to learn something new, this kind of continuous learning. And this is, this is where you mentioned the schools. Uh, starting in high school and into university, uh, I, I think there's a, there's a lot better job that, that, that can be done. Um, yeah. Because if, if you imagine a life where you're going to have, let's say, 30 to 40 years of work, um, work life, and it could be more or less, but let's just say, uh, and you're probably going to end up having to do three or four different careers, uh, maybe more, maybe less, but almost certainly it's three or four, may, uh, probably, probably more. Uh, well, w- what skill sets, what capabilities are needed to, uh, to enable you to at least have a fighting chance to make those transitions? And those are skills that we need to emphasize way more. I mean, I, I've got no patience for schools that, that are all about um, teaching information. You know, I got my pal Google that's got, that, that's got it figured out. Uh, Google, uh, Google's going to tell me everything. And Google's a, a woman, by the way. I call her she, just to balance it out a little bit. You know, she's got all the answers. Google's got it figured out. Uh, but knowing uh, what questions to ask, knowing how to think about things, um, being alert to change, developing this resilience, this open-mindedness, this adaptability. I mean, I'm not saying something no one else has ever said before. Unite, uh, the World Economic Forum published a study about the skill sets you're going to need over the next 10 or 15 years compared to the old ones, and, and they talked about adaptability, uh, creativity, ability to work in teams, ability to influence other people, whether or not you have any authority o- over them, um, a growth mindset. These are the things that we have to teach people, help kids figure out when they're young. And, uh, and then if we're, if we're a good boss, if we're a good company, uh, build that into what it takes to be successful because that talent is going to be more likely to be able to stay with you a little bit longer and contribute a little bit more if they've got that adaptability. Yep. I, you know, I, I often think going back to high school, they ought to have a course called uh, What's Going to Make Me Happy? And where people actually have to think about the things that um, make them happy and then find the career mm-hmm. path where those things are able to be extracted from you. And that's a, you know, it's more of a concept. Yeah. But I remember um, 
I got into college. It's funny, just looking to go to college. I got into Boston College. I went for an interview. I was local. We didn't have Google, your <laughs> friend Google. Yes. You went local. You applied to all the places around. We didn't know there were colleges in Michigan and all that stuff. So <laughs> uh, I went there. I went for an interview. The priest assistant director of admissions said to me, uh, Nigel, you have an interesting name and an accent. Where are you from? I said, I'm from New Zealand, Father. He said, you're in. I said, I'm in what, trouble? Or what, am, what am I? He said, no, you're in. He said, my sister married a New Zealander. He's a good guy. We want New Zealanders here, so you're in. Fast forward to Brendan, my um, youngest son, who um, went didn't go on any college visits. He picked his college off the Internet. Mm-hmm. He went to Miami, Ohio. He, he uh, was the only place he applied. He got in. He's as an engineer. He went there. I showed up on the first day with him to Orient and uh, drove into town, and he looked around, and he went, this is a cool place. This is it. And so, he, had never, he had never been there. Never been there. And um, so it all depends on the person. But I, 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 think, <laughs> I think high schools uh, have got to rethink um, how, how students, um, you know, what their desires are, what they want. I think you've got to break up a lot of their, I'm going where my friends are going and all that kind of stuff. That's, and a, hard, that's a hard one. It's a hard one because person. you're making these decisions when yeah. you're incapable of making them. Yeah. And, you know, which is the same as marriage, right? Well, people make them. With, <laughs> Let's not get into that right now. It's, okay. Yeah, it's a 50%. I think the 50% marriage failure rate and the 60% of people who don't like their jobs, there's a correlated. There's a correlated. Uh, yeah. 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 But that's the interesting thing about a course, about what makes you happy. So um, when, when someone's thinking about a career track, um, a, a, an area to, to, to work in, uh, some of the best advice I've ever heard is, and there's surveys, there's assessments, there's ways to get a sense of it, but you want to figure out uh, what you're good at, and you want to figure out what, what you like, and it's that uh, intersection. You yep. can do a little Venn diagram if you want. I'm good at all this stuff, and I really like doing this, and whatever's in the middle, well, that's, that's what you should do, and that sounds really simple, but that's probably better advice than, than most people are getting. On, on the career track that they that they should start in, uh, and and you know this idea of the person listening who's got to get to work and doesn't like it, uh, they're in a tough position. But for people that are in a uh, earlier stage or in school or, or just graduating, uh, one of the, one of the one of the most important things I always think about is optionality. Create as many options as you possibly can for yourself at every step of the way. Yeah. It's you never want to lock yourself in. I mean, this is a fundamental principle of negotiation, if, if, which might sound a little strange to connect it, but a fundamental principle of negotiation is you are in a weak negotiating position if you have no other options. That's right. Right? Uh, they call it the, the BATNA, right? The best alternative to a negotiated agreement. You're stuck if you have no other options. Uh, if, if you know you want to buy that car, that salesman sniffs that on you, uh, you're going to pay for that. Uh, you've got to have you got to have other options, and those other options don't come from heaven. They come from you planning, thinking, uh, analyzing, and creating them. And the more optionality you have, I think the more happy you're going to be. Also, yeah, I think, and I think you know, even looking at the kids and parents, you know, a lot of parents um, honestly want the uh, the college sticker, the the one they want on the back of the car, and <laughs> and that may not be as good for the kid. So I think that we have to rethink how um, what it is, you know, we go life, liberty, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, I yeah. think the last one needs a little bit more attention. Um, we certainly have liberty, um, but we, yeah. need, we need more on the happiness. And how do we do that? And how do we, um, 
how do we get more and more people that are having fun because they genuinely like what they're doing and they're thrilled to work right. and, and other things in their life go along and balance with that. That's where the life balance comes from because if you're happy, lots of things work. You yeah, know, that's right. I mean, that's just such a, such a good um, sense and, 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 and advice because there's a, as, as you probably know, a really big happiness industry out there. A uh, lot of books, a lot of uh, research on this, positive psychology for, as, as one example of a big field. Uh, and uh, and mindfulness, uh, yeah, sure. and meditation, and a lot of those things, like take mindfulness, um, these are practices that I think can be extremely powerful, but they're outside of work. They're, they're, they're set up to make up for the fact that you're not happy in your core life, if you will. Uh, and so you have to do this kind of remedial, which is a negative word, but okay, remedial work uh, or effort. And, and I'm not against, you know, meditation, mindfulness. I think they're fantastic ideas, and I'm only beginning to dabble in that, and we'll, we'll do more. Uh, but if, if we can figure out how to build that happiness into kind of the core of who we are, that's the home run. I agree. Because the other thing you haven't added on to the mindfulness fact is that um, <laughs> there's a lot of alcohol and drugs around. Yes. And actually, I'm in the alcohol business, right? But, <laughs> but there's a lot of that displacement for people to try and find the happiness that they perhaps don't right, have. Right, right, right. You know? But I think you're right. I think it has to go back to people. The problem is that you have to, when you pick a, a life partner or a career, is you're picking those at, when you're incapable of making... Because you're too young. The satellite. You, you don't see the satellite out mm -hmm. there that you're drawn towards from all this. And, um, but there's got to be a way to... Um, and maybe it's AI and maybe it's more of these uh, uh, tests you take to figure out who you are. Um, they're getting pretty good um, to the point where you can actually make better decisions and actually have a better chance of, of getting happiness by decision-making and not just happenstance. So it's going to be interesting. Well, in the work context, um, we do make you know, young people, especially undergraduates or even high school uh, graduates, uh, they make their choices about where they're going to work and where they come from. It's they know someone or they do something or they look in the Internet or what, what have you, and they, they do that. And... Uh, it may or may not be a good thing. But just because you went down that path doesn't mean you got to stay down that path. No. And that's the thing that uh, I, uh, I think is the big differentiator, recognizing that you have control over your life, n not somebody else. Uh, and that control means creating those options that I've talked about, but also recognizing that you, know, you, you can change if you want to. Uh, it turns out uh, for MBA graduates, um, something like a third, maybe more, uh, and they spent so much time getting that first job out of MBA school, um, but I think the data are something like a third will be out of that job into something else within two years. Yeah. And, uh, and there's probably no other time in their life when they've spent more time focused on what that job is going to be post-MBA. Uh, they, they, they're never going to be in a position to do as much research and thinking about that, and one-third end up switching, switching. And they're at an age of... 29, 30, when they're probably more capable of making and a decision than a 22-year-old. And still it happens. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's right. So, uh, well, what an interesting conversation, uh, oh boy. Nigel. I tell you. Uh, let, me, let me ask you, um, in, in wrapping up, so you talk about happiness. Are you happy? Oh, yeah, very much. And, uh, and to me, um, I had uh, uh, a happy life growing up. I went from New Zealand to big America. I went from an all-boys uh, cloistered, boarding school, Catholic boarding school, to Brookline High School, Massachusetts, open campus, girls everywhere. <laughs> I mean, Say no more. Very happy. <laughs>
so Nigel, one of the things I occasionally like to do at the end of our of a conversation, do a little word association. Okay, uh, are sure. Are you okay with it? I just want to tell you one lucky thing, though. Yeah. I'm lucky that I met my wife because that is, is the foundation oh. of your life. And guess why? I met her in a bar in New Jersey at last call, sheets to the wind, but something happened. And those little luck moments mm. can turn out to be now We could talk about luck cool. now in a lot of different... Think about yeah. the randomness. So now I'm thinking... There's such randomness to who you end up partnering with as a husband, as a wife, as a partner. Uh, even even today, with all these apps, you know, with Tinder and uh, Match.com or whatever they're called, um, even there, people have to have decided to go on that site and put their profile up or their photo up there. Uh, so even though that some people think it's not as random, uh, there's still a tremendous amount of randomness to this. And what is randomness? Randomness is luck. Um, Okay, word association. Um, New Zealand. So this first word that pops in your mind, whatever it happens to be, New Zealand. Best country in the world. Are we going to talk about the All Blacks? We didn't talk about that, did we? (laughs) (laughs) Untouched. Uh, Untouched, right. The the legendary rugby team, right? By the way, what's the thing they do at the beginning of a game? The haka. The haka. That totally intimidates everybody else. We used to do a haka with schoolboys before every rugby game. Did you? I can do it, yeah. How does it sound? Um, Can you do it now? Just no. You got to. It's kind of a dance thing and everything else. Oh, yeah. It would kind of sound weird, but it's about <laughs> re, it's about psyching yourself up it's to, about psyching to yourself beat up. your opponent. You know, it was what they did before they went into battle, the Maoris. Oh, that's where it came from. Yeah, yeah. Because when you see that before a uh, a match, it's really oh, it's powerful. intimidating. It's really powerful. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, back to word association. Right. You uh, want one word, I take it. Not yeah, a whole one bunch. word is better, but we ended up right. having a whole chat about that, so that's okay. Uh, Murphy's, your restaurant, Murphy's. Fun. Fun. Um, Hanover, New Hampshire. Quintessential college town. Yeah. Religion. Need it. Ne- needed? Need it. Need it. Okay, okay. And uh, happiness. Family. Nigel Leeming, thank you so much for being with us. What a fun conversation. I, was, uh, I enjoyed it so much. Thanks, Sid.